2: Find Triviality on all your
1: favorite podcast apps. But you know that because you're already listening to a podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is titled, The Short Life of Susie Dewey. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. And for today's question of the day, I thought I'd ask you once again about breakfast cereals. And that's not because I'm on a cereal kick. Uh, In fact, I hardly ever eat cereal. It's mainly because it ties in well with today's retro sponsor, which just happens to be Wheaties. You know, the so-called breakfast of champions. Now, I'm certain that most of you probably know that Wheaties cereal is famous for featuring prominent athletes on the front of their boxes. But it wasn't always this way. You see, originally the images were either on the side or the back of the boxes. So my question is fairly simple. Who was the first athlete to appear on the front of a Wheaties box? So here are your choices in alphabetical order. I've also given the sport that each athlete participated in. I should mention that all five of these people had a first for the Wheaties box, but only one was the first to be on the front panel. So was it 1. Lou Gehrig for baseball, 2. Jesse Owens for track and field, 3. Mary Lou Retton for gymnastics, 4. Bob Richards for pole vaulting, or 5. Eleanor Smith for aviation. Again, who was the first person to be featured on the front of a Wheaties box? Was it 1. Lou Gehrig for baseball, 2. Jesse Owens for track and field, Three, Mary Lou Retton for gymnastics. Four, Bob Richards for pole vaulting. Or five, Eleanor Smith for aviation. And as always, I'll let you ponder over these five choices for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer to who did what first later in the podcast. And now for today's story that I've titled, The Short Life of Susie Dewey. And this story first appeared in the press shortly before Christmas of 1965. So let's start with a little background. Uh, Susie Dewey was a five-year-old girl from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and she was diagnosed with leukemia. While that's highly treatable today, such was not the case back in 1965. Sadly, Susie Dewey's case was diagnosed by the doctors as terminal. When asked what she wanted for Christmas, Susie replied that all she wanted was a big dollhouse. While not an unusual request for a little kid, Susie was one of eight children and her parents, that's Mr. and Mrs. George Dewey, they were unable to make her dream come true. Enter the picture her older sister Debbie's boyfriend, that's 18-year-old Roger Zoet and another friend named Leonard Peschauer who was also 18 years of age. The two young men had played with Susie and they were determined to make sure that she got that playhouse for Christmas. They recalled an abandoned little green house. It was just 8 feet by 8 feet, or about 2.5 by 2.5 meters in size, that they had spotted while on a hunting trip near New Wago. New Wago is a rural town in central Michigan. And you know exactly what they thought. What a great playhouse that would make for little Susie. So the two boys drove to the site, loaded the little building onto a trailer, and they hauled it back to Grand Rapids. Abandoned or not, one can simply not drive off with someone else's building. You know, someone's sure to notice that a building is missing, and that someone was the owner of that little green house, a guy named Clarence Gifford. The boys soon learned that the house was used long ago by children who were waiting for their school bus to arrive. While it was no longer used, the little building had become something of a landmark to the people of New Ego. Once the news spread that the little greenhouse was missing, the two boys knew that they were in big trouble. So they were quickly arrested, they were thrown in the slammer, and each was sentenced to 35 years in prison. Okay, not really. They were never arrested. The two boys quickly notified the police that they had the building and their families arranged for its return. Each boy paid fines of $37.50 to the Nuego Justice Court and they were freed to go. This was clearly a case of the boys thinking with their hearts and not with their brains. Soon after the story made the news, Chicago Cub Scout Pack 3189 took it upon themselves to fulfill Susie's wish. But this time it was done legally. The boys built a replica of a 10-story office building, and that was complete with a revolving front door. The building, which was delivered to Susie by two Grand Rapids policemen, stood nearly as tall as Susie did. And you can bet that she was thrilled with her new dollhouse. One year later, Susie was once again back in the news. By this time, her health had turned for the worse. You see, the aggressive treatments that doctors had given her had caused her to lose nearly all of her fluffy hair. She was nearly bald, and she refused to leave the house unless she was wearing a hood over her head. All Susie wanted for Christmas this year was to get her brown hair back. How sad is that? The obvious solution was for Susie to get a wig, but unfortunately the family couldn't afford it on Dad's meager car salesman's salary. Within just 24 hours of the story being spread by the various news agencies, the public response was overwhelming. Uh, The family was barraged with phone calls and there were offers of wigs from all over the country. Frank Sinatra himself offered to buy her a wig or, quote, anything else she wants for Christmas. Wow. A group of students at Hope College collected $76.56. That's about $550 in today's money to help her buy that wig. A local department store said that Susie could come in and get any wig she wanted for free. And then a wiggery in Detroit offered her the same deal. Another wig manufacturer in Tulsa, Oklahoma, offered her, quote, one of the finest wigs in the United States. The International Furniture Upholsters Union kicked in $25 to start a fund to purchase gifts for little Susie. And within a couple of days, Susie was at Wurzburg's department store being fitted for her first wig. And best of all, the family had been contacted by an agent for the comedian Jerry Lewis. It seemed that Jerry Lewis wanted to fly the entire family out to Hollywood and they could spend Christmas with him and his family. Even better, there was a promise of a trip to Disneyland. The family was nearly all packed and ready to go when the news broke that, get this, it was all a big hoax. Neither Jerry Lewis or his agent ever made the offer to go to Hollywood. Now I have to say, how can anyone do such a cruel thing to a dying girl? It's just downright cruel. But Susie was never told that she was a victim of a hoax. There was no need to because two days after Christmas, she was off to California. And this time, it was for real. Accompanied by mom, dad, and her four-year-old sister, Katie, the Dewey clan landed at Los Angeles Airport on December 26th. It seems that an anonymous benefactor from Los Angeles had heard of the hoax and paid the entire airfare. Not only did they get to go to Disneyland, they were also invited as guests to Marineland of the Pacific, Universal Studios, Knott's Berry Farm, and other local amusement parks. By this time, Susie was quite frail and she required the use of a wheelchair, but that did not diminish her excitement in the least. She went on several of Disney's rides, which included the Mad Hatter's teacups, where she urged the spinning teacup to go faster, faster. She watched the Disneyland Christmas Parade, an Old West show, and the Golden Horseshoe Review. I guess one could say that in the end, Susie Dewey got everything that she wished for, even if that involved a stolen Playhouse and a nasty hoax. But there was one thing the money and all the publicity in the world couldn't buy. Less than two months after her trip to Disneyland, Susie Dewey took her final breath at 4.30 a.m. on February 22nd of 1967. Her mother, father, and uncle were at her side. Her mom was quoted as saying, in the two weeks that she'd been dying at the university hospital, she never cried once. She added, but just before she died at 4.30, she said, mommy, I want to die. Susie then succumbed to the disease that she had so bravely fought for 18 months. She was just six years old, very, very sad. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide.
0: And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: And now for a few words from our retro sponsor.
3: Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy, is on the air, in person. Fellows, girls, hang on for thrills. Tweeties, bring you a story of champions in action. Today... We're calling the role of champions of the airways, of champion transport pilots who fly their great transport planes across America. First, Jack Knight, cracked million-mile pilot of United Airlines. And Jack Knight says, Wheaties are my dish for the next million miles. Number two, David Harris pilot of American Airlines. And David Harris says, whenever I want a big breakfast that hits the right spot and tastes well, just lead me to Wheaties and I'll show you some real action. Number three, Jimmy Garrigan, top-notch pilot of the Transcontinental Western Airways, Lindbergh Line. And Jimmy Garrigan says, try that sky-high million-dollar Wheaties dish yourself. You'll agree that Wheaties taste great. Yes, and there are more, lots more. Some of America's greatest sky aces of today say Wheaties are the dish they like to eat. Try Wheaties yourself. Eat them that famous breakfast of champions' way with plenty of milk or cream, sugar, and sliced bananas. You'll say like champions of the air, say, Wheaties sure taste great. Have you tried, Wheaties? They're whole wheat with all of bran. Won't you try, (laughs) Wheaties? For wheat is the best food of man. They're crispy, they're crunchy, the whole year through. Jack Armstrong never ties with them, and neither will you. So just buy Wheaties, the best
0: breakfast
1: food in the land. That commercial for Wheaties is from an episode of Jack Armstrong, the All-American Boy, which ran on radio from 1933 to 1951. Now, Jack Armstrong was a popular athlete at Hudson High School who somehow managed to travel the globe and save the world from all those dastardly villains. Now, a little piece of trivia about the show is that the first person to portray Jack Armstrong was Jim Amici. He's the brother of famed actor Don Amici. Depending on the source you check, Wheaties was either accidentally invented in 1921 or 1922. That's when a health clinician in Minneapolis, Minnesota spilled a wheat bran mixture onto a hot stove, causing it, of course, to cook, and then he got this really tasty flake. It took George Comack, who was the head miller at the Crosby Washburn Company, some 36 attempts to get these flakes strong enough so they could be boxed and shipped. Think about it, nobody really wants a box full of wheat brand dust, so they had to get it just right. Then, a company-wide contest was held to name the new cereal. Catchy names such as Nutty's and Gold Medal Wheat Flakes were suggested, but ultimately Wheaties was chosen as the best. Credit for the name goes to Jane Bossman. She was the wife of the company's export manager. Wheaties became associated with sports quite quickly. They first started advertising with local Minneapolis baseball teams before advertising nationwide on radio. In 1933, Jack Armstrong, the All-American Boy, was created to further help promote Wheaties. In fact, Jack Armstrong was the first person ever to appear on a Wheaties box. That was in 1934, but since he's a fictional character, he really doesn't count. Which leads us to the answer to today's question of the day. And I had asked who is the first athlete ever to be featured on the front of a Wheaties box. And your choices were 1 Lou Gehrig for baseball, 2 Jesse Owens for track and field, 3 Mary Lou Retton for gymnastics. Four Bob Richards for pole vaulting, and five Eleanor Smith for aviation. Lou Gehrig was indeed the first real athlete to appear on a box in 1934, but it wasn't on the front. Eleanor Smith appeared on the box that same exact year as the first woman, but again she wasn't on the front. In 1936, Jesse Owens became the first black athlete to appear but once again, he did not land on the front. In 1984, Mary Lou Retton became the first woman to appear on the front of the box, but she was not the first person to do so, which leaves us with just one choice. That honor belongs to Bob Richards. He received the honor in 1958. And now for a few totally useless, yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what I like to call News of the weird past, and today's stories all involve blind drivers. Yes, you heard that correctly. People that were legally blind and could still drive a vehicle. And our first story is dated July 18th of 1949, when it's reported that 26-year-old Nelson E. Schultz was driving a truck at 7:30 in the morning on a dirt road about three and a half miles west of Cashtown, Pennsylvania. Passengers in the truck included his mother, wife, and four brothers and sisters. They were on their way to pick cherries. But there was a problem. Nelson was legally blind, and he couldn't see the road. So he had a great solution. He had his 11-year-old brother Merle sit on his lap, and he allowed Merle to steer. But since Merle was too short to reach the pedals of the truck, his older brother Nelson did that part for him. So it should come as no surprise, with a boy steering and a blind man controlling the gas on the brake, that an accident was about to occur. In fact, the truck flipped over. And sadly, their four-year-old brother Barry was killed. Everyone else, except for the blind driver Nelson, were injured, although none of them were seriously injured. Police charged the younger half of the driving duo with driving without a license and they charged the older half with permitting an unlicensed driver to operate the vehicle. A grand jury later handed down a charge of involuntary manslaughter against the older brother, Nelson. He was found guilty and was given a three-year suspended sentence. Our next story occurred on May 23rd of 1958 in Green Bay, Wisconsin. It was reported that a traffic officer named Loyal Nelson pulled over a weaving car. To his shock and amazement the driver was legally blind. Now the man sitting in the passenger seat claimed ownership of the car and said that the blind man was curious to know what it's like to drive, so he let him. While the names of the two men were not published, the vehicle's owner was quoted as stating he just wanted to get the feel of the wheel. There's probably no great shock here, but Officer Nelson arrested the car's owner and charge him with allowing an unauthorized person to operate a motor vehicle. The blind driver was not charged, however. And our last tidbit for today occurred on April 6 of 1962. And that's when it was announced by L.A. Billings, the then superintendent of the Kansas state motor vehicle department, that there were 128 blind people in the state that currently held driver's licenses. This finding was released after an article appeared a few weeks earlier in the newspaper and it compared the list of Kansas men that were legally blind with another list of Kansas men that held licenses. The story's author, Ray Wingerson, estimated that about 5% of the legally blind men in the state held valid driver's licenses. Some were still driving, while most just renewed their licenses for identification purposes. So you're probably wondering, how did a blind man get a driver's license? Well, it turns out it's due to a glitch in the law. It seems that any driver in the state that had their license prior to 1949, that was when they changed the regulations in the state, they could simply renew their license by mailing in payment and then, of course, they kept their driver's license. Superintendent Billings said that letters were immediately sent to 103 of these drivers to notify them that their licenses had been canceled. Now the article doesn't mention what happened to the other 25, why they didn't get notification.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Well, I hope you found today's story on Susie Dewey interesting. I certainly did. If you'd like to read more true stories just like this, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller, online, and from your local library. As always, I'll post additional resources on Facebook. That's Facebook.com/slash/UselessInformationPodcast. Useless Information Podcast. That's all one word. If you'd like to contact me for some reason, you can do that through Facebook or you can email me at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. Lastly, I'd just like to thank everyone who uh, took the time to write to me about my invention, offering the words of support. I did show it at SuperZoo about three weeks ago. Uh, that's a trade show in Las Vegas, and I think it went pretty well. I have three companies that are interested in manufacturing it for me, one in the United States, one in Mexico, and one in Asia. I'm going to start with the American one and see where that goes, and then I'll go from there. Um, there were a bunch of companies that were interested, both small retailers and some very, very large ones. I had someone from Amazon, Best Buy, Petco, PetSmart, Bed Bath & Beyond, and a few other big companies stopped by and asked me to contact them when I finally have this thing in production. Now, I do know that a lot of great inventions go nowhere, and there are a lot of dumb ones that earn people millions. I have no idea where mine will go, but if I don't take the chance, then I'll never know. I'll always be curious for the rest of my life. Anyway, I thank you for listening and for your support, and hopefully you'll tune in the next time. Bye.